Coming up on the Mark Devine Show. They would torture you, but they wouldn't let you die. And some of the torture was horrific. My roommate, they tied his elbows together. They stood on them and cinched them. And then they ran a rope over, threw it over a beam and pulled him up and left him hanging for 27 minutes until everything is just tearing out of him. And he gave in and he finally answered, but he didn't tell him anything true. They were supposed to tell the communists, they wanted him to tell them, who is somebody in your squadron who's refused to fly combat missions over North Vietnam? He finally said it was Clark Kent. Hi, Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. Thanks for joining me today. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless by speaking to the world's most inspirational and compassionate and resilient leaders, people from all walks of life, meditation monks, blockchain wizards, and even survivors of Hanoia Hilton. And before I introduce my guest today, though, I'd love to say happy holidays. I hope you had an incredible Christmas and that you stay safe and enjoy the time off between Christmas and New Year's. Thanks again. Merry Christmas. My guest today is Mr. Lee Ellis, who's the president of Leading with Honor, focuses on leadership and team development, but he's got a remarkable story. He's a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He was shot down and taken prisoner as a POW for over five years in the Hanoi system. He was released in 1973, where he returned to the Air Force and eventually retired as a colonel. He draws from his extensive experience in Hanoi Hilton and as a leadership consultant and the lessons he learned during his time in captivity to bring multiple books on leadership to the world. And he's also a highly successful speaker known for captivating audiences with his inspiring stories and the insights he gained from his incredible experiences. Lee, super stoked to have you. Thanks for joining me on the Mark Devine Show. First of all, thanks so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to uh, talking to you and I really appreciate you sending me your books. You know, I think I've only talked to one other POW, and I wish I could remember his name right now, and it's escaping me. You probably knew him. Yeah, I'll probably know most of them. Yeah, I bet you do. But I always wanted to meet Admiral Stockdale when he was alive, but you know, yeah. it just it didn't happen. I'm a little younger than him. I want to talk about that experience, but I always like to start out with like, kind of let's go back a little bit earlier. You were from Georgia. Like, what was the origin story like for Lee Ellis, right? What were the parents like? What were the, some of the foundational pillars that kind of led you into the military and just made you who you were back then before the whole POW thing? Yeah. So I grew up on a farm about 10 or 12 miles outside of Athens, Georgia, between Athens and Commerce, Georgia. And Athens is where the University of Georgia is. My mother had graduated from there in 1931, went to South Georgia, was a home demonstration agent, which means she taught... <laughs> Women demonstration agent. That's interesting. That, that was a term that state every county had one, and she worked with women and and men too. But teaching them how to can, how to sew, how to do things, you know, it was paid for by the county. It was a wow. natural thing back then. It was until the fifties, actually. But she did that, and then she transferred over to another town, and she met my dad in Cordell, Georgia. They got married. And then her mother got cancer and was dying on the farm in North Georgia. So she and my dad, and I'd just been born about a year before, and my older brother, we moved up to North Georgia to the farm. Now, my dad was not a farmer. He was a little town in South Georgia, but he wasn't a farmer. But my grandfather was, and we lived there near him on the farm. And then when my grandmother died, we moved in. But all of that to say, I had pigs to feed. Yeah. I had wood to chop coal to bring in in the shuttle, and I plowed mules. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, it was a unique era to be growing up. Give us the time frame. Is this the 50s or the 60s? I was born in 43, so we moved up there in 47. Okay, so 50s. Wow. In 53, I would have been 10 years old. Right. I started driving a car and a truck when I was 11 years old. Okay, back then, you could do that. Right. That was the kind of part. My brother, who's two and a half years older, he didn't drive anything until he was 16. I started driving when I was 11. I chauffeured my grandfather to funerals. I went to a lot of funerals because all his friends were dying and he'd say, can I drive? He'd say, yeah. And I'd drive his 49 Ford to the funeral and sit in the back. I just wanted to be adventurous and that sort of thing. Well, when I was five, we went to a, a little picnic at the Veterans Park in Athens, Georgia, and they had a World War II fighter plane sitting there on a pedestal. I climbed up on it and it was like, this is where I belong. Wow. And then in the eighth grade, 
my home room was in the library. We'd go in there for 15 minutes and check in. I sat next to the A's and I would pull out a book, aircraft, aerospace, and I'd read it for 15 minutes every morning. So I was wired, even though I was plowing those mules at age 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 on the farm, I'd look up and see those airplanes overhead and I'd say, someday I'm going to be doing that and not this. No, that's cool. It was a unique era, you know, plowing mules. And and five years later, I was flying a supersonic jet, the F-4 Phantom. That's amazing. And I can imagine, you know, I was born in 63, but I still remember, you know, the early days of all the space flight and the Sputnik missions and Apollo missions. And there was a fascination with space and you know, the test pilots of the Air Force and, you know, obviously all the services, but mainly the Air Force were all involved in that. So I could see that being such a siren call, you know, for young adventurous folks, similar to how the SEALs were for me Yeah, yeah. later on in a different way. And growing up on a farm too, you know, I wish pe- more people could experience that these days. And I think we probably will, you know, in my opinion, get, have to get back to more of that. You're starting to see, you know, more intentional communities and people to kind of intuitively heading off the grid and, and getting back to that because, you know, we need that, right? Earth needs us to have hands-on and we need to be hands-on. And yep. this movement of the past 30, 40 years of this mass industrialization of farming and everything is actually, in my opinion, is killing humanity. It's not helping humanity. I have a friend whose son is in the mid-30s, former Marine, his son is, and he works here in Atlanta. And we went to dinner one night with my friend and his wife and their son and their wife. And we were talking about their four kids. And they have four kids, and the youngest one's about five, and the oldest one's about 11 or 12. And he was talking about he had built a system where they all have chores. A five-year-old has chores. They're simple little chores. As you grow older, you have different chores and bigger chores. And I thought, this is the best idea I've ever heard because responsibility and accountability, I know they love their kids greatly. So if you have great love and you have responsibility growing up, you're going to be a healthier person. For sure. And so I'm thinking about going back to them and saying, let's work on a little book and I'll get you an author to help you. And you do a little uh, workbook even to help parents figure out how to help their children become responsible and take ownership for uh, tasks as they're growing up because so much of them, they haven't. And whenever they have a failure nowadays, it's like they get depressed and they have to go to a counselor. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And working with your hands, it doesn't have to be growing, but I love that idea of kind of going back to more community intentional living where everyone can participate. Right. And I think that that's, again, you're going to see a lot of that happen. We don't have, I don't want to get into politics or anything unless the conversation goes there, but like we all have a sense that our society, culture, everything's kind of on the, it's on the edge. There's the doomsayers and the collapsers and the survivalists, but then, you know, I kind of approach it from the emergence perspective, like what's emerging, what's trying to, you know, what's trying to grow up in the cracks and what's trying to reassert itself in terms of balance and harmony and living, living in harmony with the earth and putting aside all the linear extraction and conquer kind of conquest thinking of the industrial age, which is being, of course, perpetuated to this day through the military, pharmacological, industrial, political, you know, establishment. And the concentration of power and and energy there is doing a lot of damage. And people see that. So they're asking questions, how can we be part of the solution? I think that's one of the reasons that motivates me to do this podcast and have conversations with people like you, because there's a lot of um, gaps in leadership, right? So I think we can lead by example, like you are with your kids and through your work. And I'm trying to do the same thing, you know, through how I take care of my body and take care of you know, our community is like a living embodiment of healthy, mentally tough, emotionally mature, you know, spiritually grounded. And so people need to see it to believe it because they don't believe anything anymore that's coming at them from you know, social media and the news. <laughs> you know, I'll be 80 in October. Amazing. You look terrific. I can still do 30 push-ups. Right on. I go to the gym some. I work eight or 10 hours a day most days. In fact, I'm, I was talking about your book earlier. It's really helping me. I, I got a refocus in managing my time so that I have time to be the person that I need to be and want to be. But still, I feel like I'm on a mission. I have purpose and mission in my life, and I have been given the opportunity to do it. And so I'm sharing this message about leadership and about teamwork. You have to be both responsible and tough, and you have to be caring. That's the hand in the glove, right? 
You have to have that both. I mean, that's the yin and the yang from the Eastern tradition. Like it's the same thing. You have to be strong, but you also have to be flexible and inclusive and loving. Heart, head, and hands all united. Uh, in fact, you would find this interesting, but when I launched SealFit back in 2006, I think, originally I called my, I have this 50-hour nonstop, like really intense team training event that we is loosely modeled after the Hell Week, Navy SEALs Hell Week. Mm-hmm. But the big difference is we teach those skills that I introduce in the way of the SEAL. Like we teach breath control and visualization and mindful awareness and concentration power. And we do it in the context of a team, right? To take your eyes off yourself, put them on your team. We started to see these extraordinary transformations occurring, you know, 12 hour flow states, you know, people finally opening up and in a loving relationship with complete strangers. Yeah. And so I, I was trying to figure out what is this? What's going on? Like, what do I call this? And because I was a martial artist, I was been inspired by the, you know, some of the martial ancient samurai and, you know, those warrior traditions where they were able to fuse the hard and the soft, right? The inner and the outer, the yin and yang. And there's this term that kept popping up to me and it was kokoro. And kokoro means to merge your head and your heart and your hands in action or in service. Isn't that cool? And so I like, that's what's happening. These people, as a result of this training and this experience, are opening their heart. They're getting out of their head from the limited thinking and opening up their mind mm-hmm. and accessing more of their mind, better decision-making, more calm clarity, but then they're expressing it in service right, to others. And that's what I think we need more of in this world. We need people to open their hearts and to be put their eyes on others and realize, look for the sameness instead of always pointing out the differences and drawing lines and boundaries and borders and pointing weapons at each other. Like This is obviously not working. I had a session yesterday, a two-hour session, with uh, a bunch of NCOs in the Air Force. Oh, great. And I had a one-page handout where they could look at the six things that are typical of a person who's highly results mission-focused and one who's more relationship, social-focused, people-focused, and had them identify which one was they're more tilted towards. Because 40% population tends to be toward one and 40% toward another, your natural go-to. And it was interesting because a lot of them admitted that they were more relational and did not hold people accountable. And so we talked about how to hold people accountable in a loving way. (laughs) You know, if you're a parent, you got to learn to do that. And if you're a leader, you got to learn to show people respect and care about them, but hold them accountable. Right. I said, you know, you got to engage with them early on. You can't put it off. When you see it starting to get off track, you got to pull them in and say, okay, let's talk about this. But it was interesting because we were talking about this whole thing of caring about your people, but also holding them accountable, being tough, but still caring about them. That's really what tough love means. It doesn't mean just be tough and then in your own mind say, well, I still love them. I mean, it's like literally, let me use another example with SealFit. The experience that people have with my SEAL coaches who are all have put thousands of people through our training. If you just watch the YouTube video, what you see is Navy SEAL training. Like it's intense, right? It's intense. But if you're there and you're standing on the other, in front of one of these Navy SEAL coaches who are one of my coaches, what you feel is love. It's tough love. It's for their interest, for their best interest to teach them how to get through this challenging situation and pointing out where their actions, behaviors, or thoughts aren't working and aren't going to serve them in that capacity. So I think that requires training, right? It requires, and when I say training, it doesn't have to be formal training in a training program, but opening up that heart and having those compassionate conversations and, you know, developing that capacity for tough love requires work. Yes. It's hard work. The soft, especially for men, yeah. you know, developing compassion and having open-hearted conversations, it's hard work, Yeah, but it's got to be done, right? Yesterday, I remembered what you would have said. I said, now, you've got to set aside time to reflect and meditate. You've got to set aside time in the mornings or in the evening, think about what's going on in your organization and listen to your intuition. If something tells you it's probably not going well over there, you probably need to go investigate and check it out and see whether it is or not. I said, I learned this because I had pictures of all my direct reports on the wall and I would sit there and just look at them. And I felt like everything was okay. I keep going and I go to somebody and it says, something tells me that's not right in there. And I call them in and say, okay, how's everything going in your area? Well, well, what about so-and-so? 
yeah, he's a problem. If they said, no, there's not a problem, I said, why don't you go dig into it and see and just come back and let me know if it's okay, fine. If it's not, take care of it. And I said, taking time to meditate and reflect on your world and what's happening and where you are is going to really help you be able to balance and adapt to either be tougher or kinder and more affirming of people. All right. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your actual Air Force career, you know, getting into become a pilot and, and what you flew and what that was like. And then also let's get into the incident, you know, when suddenly you realize <laughs> you're falling through the air, your plane's going down. So I graduated from college uh, in 1965, and three days later, I was in flight school. 53 weeks later, I had an assignment. It said F-4 Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia. You knew what that meant, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, I did, because this was August of 1966, so the war in Vietnam is building up fairly quickly then. Right. So I went to SEER school and then to F-4 training, combat training, out in the high desert of California between or near Victorville, but it's between uh, about a third of the way from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Was that Edwards Air Force Base? or No, it was George Air Force Base. George, yeah, I know it, George. Yeah. It. But we were about 120 miles south of China Lake, and we would do uh, all our bombing. Our range was up there, and occasionally we'd get into a little dogfight with the Navy fighters up there. And sometimes we'd go down to San Diego and get in a little dogfight. And it was wonderful. We did everything they did in Top Gun, all the air to air and all the air to ground, which they didn't do in the first Top Gun, but they did in the second one. Mm -hmm. And it was all for getting ready, qualified to go to war. And as quick as we finished, we headed out to Southeast Asia, either to Thailand, we had a couple of bases there, or to Vietnam. And I went to Da Nang in the northern part of South Vietnam, about 60 miles south of the DMZ. Wow. So you actually flew missions out of Da Nang? Yes, I did. And initially, when I first got there, I was in a 366 TAC fighter wing, which was the F-4 wing at Da Nang. And they were flying all the missions that were flown into North Vietnam by F-4s. And part of those were bombing missions up near Hanoi. And part of those were uh, MIGCAP. They call it MIGCAP, protecting the bombers from the MIGs that were coming in to attack them. Right. And so I was all excited about that. And three weeks after I got there, <laughs> the 7th Air Force in Saigon took away that mission from us. And all we did was fly into the southern part of North Vietnam with air to ground bombing on the Ho Chi Minh Trail and trucks and bridges and road blowing up the road, as well as close air support for the Marines and the Army up in the northern part of Vietnam and interdiction missions in Laos. But mainly I flew bombing interdiction missions of bombing the roads and trucks in southern part of North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Just walk me through like a typical mission, like how long do they last? You know, what were the critical inflection points and what was your mind doing throughout those missions? Well, if you went up on a mission up near Hanoi, that was a total different thing because you went in a big formation. Right. There might be 16 F-4s and a bunch of 105s and all that. 30 or 40 airplanes going in to bomb to protect the bombers. And there was a lot more surface air missiles and MiGs up there. Whereas if you're in the southern part flying like I was, it was mostly anti-aircraft artillery. And if you got down low, it was uh, machine guns and rifles and all that kind of stuff. Right. We always got shot at. Almost every mission we got shot at. And you see tracers here and there. And especially when you're rolling in and you're coming down to bomb, you could see tracers and 7th of November, 1967, was on my 53rd mission up north, and uh, the tracers were going by. But when the bombs came off, right, we pulled immediately, and the airplane blew up. Oh, shit. What caused the explosion? Did you get hit by an an anti-aircraft gun? That's an interesting question, because we were sure it had to be AAA, anti-aircraft artillery. And that was unusual, because they didn't, you normally never blew up an airplane. They blow a hole in the wing or or holding the tail or hit the engine and the engine would quit. But our airplane blew into several pieces. And fortunately, the cockpit was tumbling, negative Gs. I couldn't want to eject with my head up against the canopy. And all of a sudden it flipped. And we were so well trained and I just, I knew exactly what to do. I pulled the handle, boom, my partner. And we had two pilots in the F-4. He jumped out and I was just totally doing training. I was slipping my parachute, planting my PLF, parachute landing fall. I did mine. They actually caught him in his parachute. He didn't get to do a PLF. Oh, who's, you mean the enemy? Yes, the enemy caught him. Really? Wow. Caught him. 
as he was hitting the ground, they caught him. They grabbed the reins. Wow. And they probably all fell down, but the militia had him. And I got on the ground and I'd been trying to slip my parachute to get to a river a couple hundred meters south. And that river was only about three quarters of a mile from the Gulf. I said, if I can get to the Gulf, the Navy can pick me up. Well, I couldn't slip it. And I did my parachute landing fall. I jumped down in an old bomb crater, disconnected my parachute, pulled out my emergency radio, called my wingman and said, hey, I'm on the ground 200 meters north of the river, start strafing at 300. I'm headed south. Well, within 90 seconds, they captured me. Oh, no kidding. Two years after I came home, I was at a fighter pilot reunion and my wingman was there and he said, hey, I heard your call, but you know what? I decided I couldn't shoot that accurately. I was afraid they were going to be close to you. And I said, that was very wise because they surrounded me and captured me within a couple of minutes. Wow. So they stripped me down to my underwear, searched me, gave me my flight suit back, and then tied my hands, put a, a blindfold on me. And I could kind of see out and underneath the bottom part. Mm -hmm. And then they put a rope around my neck and led me like a dog from village to village. With your co-pilot? Actually, he was the aircraft commander and I was right out of flight school. The Air Force was putting pilots in the back seat. The Navy and Marine Corps had Rios back there, radar intercept officers. So they put me in the underground shelter with him for about, I heard somebody, we were both blindfolded. I heard somebody breathing. It was real quiet. This was like a few minutes after I was captured. And I said, Ken, is that you? And he said, yeah, you okay? I said, yeah, are you? He said, yeah. And they came in and pulled me out, and I didn't see him again for a week. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing was the guy that was in charge militia of taking me north was a great soldier. He was a tough guy, but he was very honorable. And he used his soldiers to defend me and protect me from the wild and crazy people that were trying to hit me with rocks and sticks. And Really? You mean like the civilians, the townspeople? How many of you were there who were shot down and rolled up into Hanoi? Well, there are two groups. The bombing stopped in the summer, late summer of 1968. So from August 4th of 1964, when Everest was captured, and then the second person was captured in February 65. So he was there six months before any of us got there. He was an A-4 pilot. And then by 1968, then that's when they stopped the bombing. And so we had people there five to eight years, eight and a half years. And then we didn't have any more new guys for almost three years Hmm. because they stopped the bombing of the North. Now there were some prisoners captured in the South that were prisoners and they put them in layouts in one part of North Vietnam, but they were not in our system. And we have one of those guys' stories, one army guy in our book, Captured by Love book. He was an army guy. But anyway, by 1968, there were about 390 of us that were in the Hanoi POW system. They captured, uh, shot down a lot of them in 66, but even more the fall of 67. And that's why when I got to Hanoi, the, the prison was almost full, chock full. And the other prison, the plantation and the zoo were pretty full because they were capturing so many. So I got put in a six and a half by seven foot cell with three other guys. One of them was Ken Fisher my aircraft commander. Six and a half by seven feet, you know, it's like a gas station bathroom. Right. And it was our bathroom. We had a three-gallon bucket, and thank goodness it had a lid on it, and we got to empty it every morning in the sewer. Wow. We got fed twice a day, uh, six months of pumpkin soup, thin watery pumpkin soup with either a cup of rice or a small bag of bread, and then twice a day, and then three months of cabbage soup, and then three months of sewer green soup. And Sewer greens were like chopped up lily pads, boiled. The good thing was it was boiled, killed the germs. There'd be bugs in it. There'd be rat turds in it. But overall, it was cooked. And, Sounds delicious. You know, you just eat whatever you have to to survive. You needed the hydration too. So they were smart enough to give you that. A lot more people would have died without that probably. I'm curious, you know, why were they so successful at bringing down our aircraft? Was it just because of the close combat nature of the war? Yes. One reason is because our targets were controlled from Washington, D.C. by people yeah. who didn't know anything about the military. It was right. stupid, you know. We were flying the strikes over Hanoi occurred like three times a day, four times a day at a certain hour, you know, here they come. Wow. And it was just crazy. And here's the other thing. We could not go in and bomb certain parts of Hanoi, and we could not shut down Haiphong, where their harbor was, where all the stuff was coming in. We did bomb the railroads coming in from China, where a lot of the stuff from Russia came in through China, and China was providing some. 
but most of their stuff, uh, surface air missiles, that sort of thing. And American soldiers, fighter pilots were so convinced and convicted to do their mission mm-hmm. that when you rolled in, you're going to drop those bombs, whatever. Right. That meant that it was the most highly defended area in the world. There's no area like Hanoi. There's no place ever been defended like North Vietnam between Hanoi and Haiphong. It seems almost like your hamstrung or hands were tied to actually do the important work, which was to shut off the supply of ammunition. Mark, I had been there. I'm a 23-year-old first lieutenant. I've flown after about 20 missions, 25 missions. I thought, what the hell is going on here? Who's running this show? I can think up ways that are better to fight this war, air war than, than we're doing. Now, I'm a pretty confident guy, okay? But I think most of us saw that, but there wasn't much we could do about it. Right, of course not. Well, we'll leave the politics of it aside. There you go. Because <laughs> you could look at every war like that, right? Like, what's going on? That's right. So this experience, like most people can't even fathom you know, a week of imprisonment. You know, losing your freedom like that and the shame and the debasement that comes with that loss of freedom. And, you know, some people got treated worse than others probably, and there's a little luck involved. But like, talk us through that experience. And we know a lot about Stockdale and, you know, some of the stories uh, and ways that you guys all came together as a team and kept rank structure and learned to communicate. And tell us about that. And I'll I'll just let you talk because I don't even know what question to ask because it's such a foreign concept to me. Here's the thing. Initially, we were isolated. Our walls in that six and a half, about seven foot cell, that one cell block, it didn't have any touching walls. So that separated them and built those little cells from what the French had that separated them. And so we couldn't tap on the wall to anybody next door for the first eight months I was there. One day I heard a guy's voice outside on the inside, the campgrounds there on the inside wall. And I heard a guy, English American voice say, hey, you guys know the code. And I jumped up and we had these wooden boards to sleep on. And I was on the top one. They're like bunk beds, but they were against the wall. They were 16 inches apart. So we had to take turns walking that seven foot back and forth. I jumped up and he said, my name is Judy. It was Bill Judy, T-S-C-A-U-D-Y. He said, my name is Judy. The code is five by five matrix. A is one, one. B is one, two. And about that time, the guard came over and slugged him and dragged him away. Well, I turned around and told my cellmates what happened and what he said. And one of them said, what's the missing letter? Five by five matrix, 25 letters. There's 26 letters in the alphabet. He said, what's the missing letter? He said, he got dragged away before he told me. So I said, it's probably Z. We don't use it that much in English. So let's try Z. And we did for three or four weeks. And some words worked out. Some words fell apart. As we were hearing people out in the, in the wash house, there was a wash out in the central courtyard, and guys would get these bamboo brooms and sweep away the scum on the floor, and you could hear them sweeping code. Huh. Well, one day they brought a guy in from an interrogation, and he was about my height and had real black hair like I did then, and they opened the door, pushed him in, slammed the door, and left. And he had mistakenly put him in our cell thinking he was me. Hmm. And so we started talking, you know, what's, where are you from? What are you doing? Who's in your cell? And we said, what's the missing letter? And he said, it's K. You use C for K. So then we had it. I'm curious, who developed that? Like, where did that come from? Well, here's the deal. One guy of all the POWs, one guy at Sears School, the instructor said in World War II, the guys were able to tap on the pipes from one building to the other in Germany to tap on the pipes and communicate. And as they walked out of there, this guy kept walked up to the instructor and says, wait a minute, how did they communicate? You can't tap a dot and a dash for Morse code. And the instructor said, oh, it's not Morse code. It's a tap code, five by five matrix. You see for K. And this guy remembered it. His name is Smitty Harrison. He was POW number five. He's 94 years old. His story is in our new book, Captured by Love. And Smitty passed it on. He was in solitary, and he got put in cell with Bob Shoemaker, who was the senior ranking guy there, Lieutenant Commander Bob Shoemaker, who was a retired admiral, eight-year POW. And so they got put in cell with three other guys, and then they split them back apart, and they spread the word, and everybody would risk everything to spread the word and share the tap code. So we all had it. Guys would tap long poems. In addition to all the operational information we needed to know, 
gods would tap Bible verses, poems, books, even books through the wall. Now, the captors must have known this is going on because they can hear this tapping going on. So did they try to stop it? We had a real good secure system in that if somebody heard the guard coming down the hall, they would bump the wall with their elbow and you hear a bump and everybody just acts like they're not doing anything, you know, they're just, and they finally figured out we were tapping on the wall, but they couldn't break it. They couldn't understand it because we had shaving a haircut to start it and you had to respond with two bits. (laughs) Sorry. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, fascinating. That established what letter came next after two bits. Let me tell you about being tortured. So here's what happened. 95% of people were tortured. When I got there, they told me they wanted me to fill in, all of us, to fill in a three-page biography, four of us and myself. One guy filled it out right away, and he ended up being one of only three collaborators with the enemy out of 390 or so. But he was a senior-ranking guy, and the number two guy, the guy I was flying with, Ken Fisher, relieved him of command and told him he's going to court-martial him when we got home. But the other three of us were tortured to fill out that three-page biography. I figured it was for the Russians to build up an understanding of American pilots or something. Anyway, I was tortured, and I finally gave in. And I filled out that three-page biography. And the only thing I put on it that was true was my father's first and last name, hoping that someday I could write a letter home, which I did at two years. And I got my first letter, six-line letters, at two and a half years. But when I finished that, I'm in handcuffs, leg irons, blindfolded. You just made up the story. Yeah, I just, all the stuff in there was just made up, okay? But here's the deal. I was so ashamed. Oh, my gosh. I was the lowest scum that had ever worn a uniform because I couldn't beat them and live up to the code of conduct of only sharing name, rank, service, number, date of birth. I cried. I was so ashamed. Well, they come in and finally they take me back to my cell. And one guy, one of my cellmates is already back. So at least I lasted longer than him. And then Ken Fisher lasted a good bit longer than either one of us. Well, Ken comes back and he had given in and done the same thing. Ken was a New York State wrestling champion. He wrestled in college at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the toughest guy I've ever known. Incredible character great guy. He was my leader for the next three years. And I am who I am today because of his example for me of being a person of great character and courage. But here's what we all found out. And then a little bit later, we found out that everybody in the camp, they could torture you and make you do something. And you had to give up before you had permanent mental damage or physical damage so that you could stay in the battle and bounce back. Right. Our leaders, Stockdale and Reisner and Denton, those guys were tortured the most, and that's what they did. They finally give them something and bounce back. Happy to have Kudo as a sponsor of the Mark Devine Show. And I remember being in high school and coming home from swim or other sports practice and just being so hungry that I'd devour an entire bowl of popcorn, buttery, salty popcorn. It was delicious, and I didn't feel guilty at all. Well, I still love popcorn, but I've always been on the hunt for a guilt-free version of it, one that was actually healthy, guess what? Meet Kudo, the official protein popcorn of the UFC. Kudo Popcorn's revolutionary cooking method allows each bag to have 10 grams of whey protein isolate while still tasting absolutely delicious. That's right, 10 whole grams of protein in every bag. So now you can get in on the snacking revolutions that MMA athletes Michael Chandler, Robbie Lawler, Bruce Buffer, and even Dana White himself endorse. For a limited time, listeners will get 25% off their entire order using the code DIVINE at kudosnacks.com. Kudo Popcorn has some great flavors. I love their garlic parmesan, their white cheddar, and they've got that salty sweet kettle corn. They all taste incredible and make healthy snacking something that you can actually enjoy. There's other reasons to make Kudo Popcorn your go-to snack. It's gluten-free, preservative-free, 100% whole grain, keto-friendly, only 70 calories per cup, and it's made right here in the old U.S. of A. You'll be amazed at how Kudo Popcorn has somehow made your favorite healthy snack even tastier and healthier. Remember, for a limited time, you can get exclusive 25% off discount when you use the code DIVINE at kudosnacks.com. Again, 25% off. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E, at kudosnacks.com. Save some money, support the official protein popcorn of the UFC, and get popped. 
You know, I think sleep is one of the most underrated but most important things that you can do for your overall health, both physically and mentally. Suboptimal sleep will affect your moods, it'll affect your gut, it'll affect your motivation. So you got to get that sleep. I know how tough that can be around the holidays, what with all the partying going on and all the family dramas. So I like to fall back on Momentus. Momentus' sleep pack is incredible. Their combination of ingredients helps me get to sleep fast, stay asleep longer, and have that high-quality deep sleep. Their sleep pack is super convenient. It comes in single-serve pouches. They've got all the essential ingredients for an incredible night's sleep. I wake up feeling really refreshed, and I don't have to worry about the holiday season wearing me down. Momentus' sleep pack is designed by the world's leading experts in sleep science, and they're used by the world's leading athletic teams, as well as warriors like my SEAL teammates. But they're made for everybody. Learn more at www.livemomentous.com. That's L-I-V-E, momentous, M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com. Use the code DIVINE at checkout, D-I-V-I-N-E, for 20% off your first order. Again, livemomentous.com, code DIVINE. That resiliency that that required, mind-blowing. One of the things that I remember reading is you really didn't know how long you were going to be in captivity. And I think stock, maybe this came from Admiral Stockton. Those people who didn't set a deadline for like, I'm going to be out by Christmas or I'm going to be out by this time next year, but we're just like taking it kind of like micro goals. Let's just get through today. They succeeded and survived at a much higher rate or much healthier rate than those who like had a, maybe a hope or a wish and a certain deadline that they were going to be released by. Well, I greatly admire Admiral Stocktail, and Jim Collins is a friend of mine. I greatly admire him. Mm -hmm. But that's the one thing that got Jim didn't quite understand what Stocktail was saying. What happened was Denton, Admiral Denton, Commander Denton, then they were both about the same rank. See, they're both squadron commanders, or one was a group commander, air group commander. But Denton was an optimist and more of an over the top sometimes. He was more outgoing, more social. Stocktail's a stoic. But Denton was tough, and he lasted seven and a half years and resisted just as well as Stocktail did. But he was always coming up with this, we're going to be out by next summer, kind of thing. And it irritated Stockdale. Interesting. But in Stockdale's quote in Jim Collins' book about you must always believe that you're going to succeed, but you must deal with every day as it is. Yeah. And that's true, but didn't believe that too. And here's the thing. A lot of people would think, okay, I'm going to be here until next summer. And then we'll probably, because of politicians, they got to run for president, we'll get it over. And then next summer come, that's happened to me. I said, I'm going to be out by the summer of 68. I'm going to go to the Mexico City Olympics. Mm -hmm. President Johnson decided not to run. And then July came and I was still there. And I said, okay, I can do one more year. Right. And a year later, I said, well, I can do two more years. Mm -hmm. But it was really three and a half. So we learned to, sometimes we'd set a goal out there, but, you know, we adjusted it. It became, it was our way of life. Mm-hmm. There was not too much problem with that one thing is the only thing I've ever seen that was a little bit off base in Stockdale's writing and Jim Collins' writing. Mm-hmm. A little bit misleading because of his and Denton's competition. He didn't like Denton saying, we're going to get out of here next summer. And that he felt like that was a little bit undermining, I think. But they both were very courageous and they both set a great example for us. And we all stayed positive. No matter what, we stayed positive. We're going to get out of here someday. We're going to do our duty to the best of our. And when we get knocked down and we have to give in, we're going to bounce back. And our teammates were really strong and would take great risks to get to us and say, man, we're proud of you. We're not leaving without you. We're proud of you. Yeah. See, that caring goes back to what we were talking about earlier on caring was so important. Mm Mm-hmm. I was recently in Washington, D.C., and I went to the Holocaust Museum, and it's just like heart-wrenching. Yep. And what's coming up for me now is like, I'm actually like feeling like you probably have a lot of gratitude for the Vietnamese people to not be the horrific people that the Nazi Germans were, or even, you know, some of the atrocities of the Japanese in World War II, like they would have just killed everyone. Well, now the communists killed millions of people in Vietnam. When Ho Chi Minh took over, they killed two or three million people who wouldn't go along with them to clear the house. Communists can do that because the end justifies the means for them. But with us, 
we were too important to them. They saw us as hostages and they saw that value. I see. Okay, that makes more sense to me now. They would torture you, but they wouldn't let you die. And some of the torture was horrific. I didn't have to go through the pretzel, the rope torture. Ken Fisher, my roommate, when we were on our way to Hanoi, they tied his elbows together and cinched them all the way till they touched. They stood on them and cinched them, which was tearing in here. And then they ran a rope over through that and tied it and threw it over a beam and pulled him up and left him hanging for 27 minutes with hanging by this until everything is just tearing out up here. He was one tough hombre. And he gave in, and he finally answered something other than name, rank, service, number, date of birth, but he didn't tell him anything true. I was going to tell you, one guy was tortured, and they were supposed to tell the communist, the interrogator, and it was bad torture. And so finally he said, okay, they wanted him to tell him, who is somebody in your squadron who's refused to fly combat missions over North Vietnam. Well, no one had, but they had heard that, see, propaganda. So he finally said, yes, it was, and it was Clark Kent. (laughs) And, of course, we all knew, and the American people all knew exactly what had happened. (laughs) So that's what we did. You give in, but you don't give up the battle. That's right. I want to talk a little bit about reintroduction or coming, you know, finding your way back into normal air quotes around that society, you know, after you were released. And of course, then some of the major leadership lessons. And also I want to touch on why the prisoners did not suffer from post-traumatic stress like some of the modern combatants are after Iraq and Afghanistan. So let's just start with like your reintroduction society. What was that like and how did that, you know, go for you? You know, I mentioned earlier that When Ho Chi Minh died and the pressure they were getting, they stopped the torture. Then after the Sante raid on the Sante camp by the special forces, we had moved out, but they put us all back in Hanoi in these 16 to 1800 square foot cells, big rooms. And there we were with 40 to 60 guys for a year and a half to two years. And there wasn't anything. We weren't getting tortured. We could kind of live and let live. And we started working on getting healthy Mm -hmm. every day. We were turning loose of shame, anger, bitterness. Wow. The issue was we were smart enough to know if we went home with shame, guilt, anger, bitterness, we would still be in handcuffs and leg irons. Right. How did this come about? Were there like spiritual leader who kind of took the lead on this or how how did that healing process come about? It was a little bit of everything. We had some guys that were psychologists in there, psychology majors. We had people who had fought in the Korean War and knew about what some of that was people had gone through and people had other trauma. And we were able to be with people who had been through worse than we had and longer than we had and to talk about it and to realize that we did our best. Right. We did our best. And now look at us. We're going to go home someday. Mm -hmm. And we lost three buddies here and two buddies there that are not coming home. Right. I mean, mainly shot down and didn't become POWs. We didn't lose that many POWs, but we had lost a couple of our friends and cellmates. And so we're we're celebrating that we're alive and we're doing push-ups. Guys would have sit-up contests. One guy did a thousand sit-ups, you know. <laughs> we're competing. We're getting ready to go home. We had French, Spanish, and German classes. We had no books, but we had majors, people who had majored or spoken at home. We had Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And we had church on Sundays. We had a choir. We had all these weird fighter pilots who get up and give a homily speech and sermon on Sunday morning, you know, about, guys, think of us. We're here and doing well. Our, we have buddies that didn't die. You know, we had one guy that was thinking seriously about suicide there. He had a mental illness problem. And he gave that speech that Sunday morning for that. And I still remember it. But it became a very healthy environment. We cared about each other. We took care of each other. We stayed fairly healthy. We were preparing to come home and pick it up and run with it again. Mm-hmm. And most of us actually came back and requalified for flying and went on with our careers. Unbelievable. And so that's why I wrote this book, Captured by Love, Inspiring True Romance Stories from Vietnam POWs, because almost every guy that I know either was married and stayed married. Some of them came home and they divorced right away. They remarried within a year and they've been married 48 and 49 years. 
And our PTSD rate is much lower than the combat veterans who fought in the South. We have very little PTSD. And our age, we're outliving our peers. It's incredible. It's unreal, isn't it? It is unreal. You know, there's a great quote from The Return of the King from The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. There's no glory without suffering. Yeah, and this is true. If you have the right attitude and are able to suffer through it, you can be stronger, I think, especially emotionally and mentally. And the greater the suffering, the more strength and courage that you have, you know, but it's how you approach the suffering, right? And I think that's where people today have it wrong, right? They don't, they steer away from anything that seems hard or is going to bring the level of even in physical training, right? They'd rather take a pill and lose weight than actually train hard. And they don't realize that hard work and hard experiences when approached with the right mindset and in community, and this is a big piece, like you had a community and a lot of these vets getting out, you know, their team just gets left behind and suddenly they find themselves alone staring at a bottle and their bottle is their friend. And that's not a good friend to have in that situation. We had a strong community and still do. And that made all the difference in the world. You know, we, we were suffering, but we were suffering together. That's right. <laughs> and people stayed positive. You know, it's like, it is unreal to think about it. It was our way of life. Mm-hmm. And we all, I think, grew healthier in many ways. I had this dream one night. I've been there about four or five months. I was a lazy student, the laziest student who ever graduated from the University of Georgia in four years. That was me. (laughs) I did really well in ROTC. I was a distinguished graduate number two in my class. But in school, I didn't care. I'm going to graduate, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, one night I had this dream. It was almost like a nightmare, but it was a dream. I was in ninth grade science class, Miss Jordan's class, and everybody in there was my classmate. And she walked over to me, put her hand on my shoulder, said, Lee, you could be a good student if you just do your homework. (laughs) When I woke up the next day, I remembered that, and I thought about it day after day, and I made a commitment. I will always do my homework. But you know, I would never have written six books had I not had that dream. That's awesome. (laughs) It's amazing the wisdom that can come through our psyche that way in dreams. You mentioned you live by a code, and I, too, really encourage or work with my clientele to develop a code or an ethos, right? Mm -hmm. And we use the Navy SEAL ethos as kind of an inspiration, but everyone's got to have their own because everyone's unique. But someone maybe share with us some of the elements of your code. And I know you have this at your website, right? That people yep. can go download and you know print it out. It, originally, it was a circle. But after a year or so, I said, you know, courage has to be in the middle because with that courage, you can't do that other stuff. I agree. But it's so simple, you know. The first one, tell the truth, even when it's difficult. Right. Avoid duplicity and deceitful behavior. The second one, treat others with dignity and respect. Take the lead and show value to others. Nice. And the third one is keep your word and your commitments. The fourth one is be ethical. And they all have little subtitles. Five is act responsibly, do your duty, and be accountable. Six is live your values. And then seven is be courageous. We have a little courage card, same size of business card. And on one side, it says lean into the pain of your doubts and fears to do what you know is right, even when it doesn't feel safe or natural. Mm-hmm. That's the courage challenge. I love that. Lean into the pain of your doubts and fears to do what you know is right, even when it does feel safe or natural. Those are wise words. It's interesting. I, I want to share this because it syncs up almost in pretty strong alignment. My last book, I'll be putting on number six in uh, next year called Uncommon. But in my book, Staring Down the Wolf, that was my Leaders Need to Be Emotionally Aware book. And it came about when St. Martin said, hey, we want you to write a, a Navy SEAL leadership book. And I said, well, you know, there's kind of a lot of that out there right now. I said, but we need a book about teams. So just, but can I do a book about teams? And they said, sure. So the way I like to write is, you know, if, if I don't already know the content and, you know, if someone wants, this was more like, hey, you do this. And I teach team building. So I could have easily just done something formulaic, but I sat down and meditate on it. And I just, just sat down there for several weeks. I didn't get busy writing. I just, you know, kind of sat down and asked, right? What's this book supposed to be, right? Yeah. And out of one of my meditations, literally, these seven words kind of came to me in this order. And I ended up calling them, the book was going to be titled The Seven Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. 
that ended up being the subtitle. And I called the book Staring Down the Wolf, which is a reference to like staring down your fears yeah, and overcoming the trauma and the doubts and the shame and the guilt, right? Because all leaders have that, right? Whether you're a few W or just right. have some childhood trauma. Anyways, the seven commitments, the first one is courage. Like you said, because without courage, nothing happens, right? right? You have to develop that courage because that's the doorway through which all good things happen. It is. And then the seven commitment, I only talk about the first three. The second commitment is trust. Is first trust yourself, develop the ability to be trustworthy. And then that'll accrue trust amongst the team. And then that's something you have to invest in every single day. Because like you said, in the SEALs, one off shit can wipe out a thousand attaboys. So you have to invest in trustworthiness. And then the third is respect. Now those are close cousins, trust and respect. But respect is like, let's respect everyone. Let's treat everyone with the dignity that he deserves. And those three foundationally, and they're, they're in your code. If you, you know, just start with those, man, everything just starts coming together after that. You know, when you were saying that, that's exactly what we had in the POW camp. Is that right? Courage, trust, and respect. No kidding. We didn't talk about that, but when I look back at it now. That's what you had. Yeah. That's what held us together and inspired us to believe that we can get through this. There's some stuff I don't like about you and stuff you don't like about me, but we're a team and we got a mission. That's right. I'm going to trust you. If something falls apart, I know that you did your best. That's right. I trust and respect you. And so uh, I'm not going to worry about it because I know you're going to do your best to protect me or to carry the message to that other building over there. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have different talents. I'm pretty good at being a risk taker and I could communicate secretly in the POW camp very comfortably. Interesting. Because I felt like I can get away. Now, I had people clearing for me to help him protect me, but I just felt like, you know, one time somebody dropped a note in the middle of the courtyard in the camp, and they dropped it somewhere near the, where the guard tower was, just right out in front of it. And so I said, I'm going to go find it. And I went up there kicking rocks and wandering around. Normally, I never did that, you know. But I kind of slid away from the guards in the turnkey, and I was just kind of kicking a couple of rocks looking down, and I saw that note, and I just scooped down and picked up a leaf and threw it down, but I had the note in my hand and hit it and came back in. And, you know, if they had caught me, they'd beat the crap out of me. Wow. <laughs> that might have taken me to another camp, but I just figured I can pull this off, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. But I didn't last as long in torture as my cellmate did, you know? So we all have a little bit different talents. So Captured by Love, this is the stories of some of your compatriots and how they found love and healed through love afterwards? About half of them were married and stayed married. Okay. And so their wives were running. It's a lot about what the women did. That's pretty powerful that a marriage could survive that. They didn't know that we were alive. A lot of them didn't. Right. And then about a fourth of them were married and their wives divorced them when they came home. Mm-hmm. Some of them went to Mexico and divorced them before they came home. Hmm. And then about five of us were single, and we met the right one when we came home. And I was about the last bachelor of all the bachelors of the POWs. I was about the last one, and I dated so many wonderful, nice girls before and after I came home. And finally, all of a sudden, I moved. I went back to Valdosta, Georgia, become an instructor pilot there. And I hadn't been there but eight weeks. And on Memorial Day weekend, I went to the club on Friday night. And these two girls, I'm sitting at the bar drinking with another guy, and there's music playing. These two girls walk in, and I said, I'll see you later. I'm going to go dance with her. <laughs> and then we started dating, and it wasn't long until I knew that she was the one. We've been married 48 and a half years. Oh, that's terrific. Our story is number 20, the last one. The title of it is When You Meet the One. But we are totally opposites in personality. And we're three standard deviations apart in patience. <laughs> I tell people I had to go down to find a parts repair place in town and go down and have a wrist that put in my back so I can turn down my intensity, turn down my confrontation, turn down my impatience before I go home every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, oh man. We got to wrap this up here. We've been going for a while, but what a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate you for doing this and for your time. Where, do you have a place for you, like folks to come to learn about your books? That book is at POWromance.com. And actually, you can read several of the stories there. You can read the foreword by Tony Orlando and also a foreword by Gary Sinise. 
and then the introduction to the book, why, for those of you who were people who, readers who were not around during the Vietnam War, I give a brief history in the introduction of the war, the men, and the women. And then we go into the stories. And the stories are mostly, as I mentioned, some were married and stayed married, what the wives did. Some were married and divorced when they came home. Some how they met, some of those how they met. You, Hollywood couldn't write a script like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Unreal. It's like, really, that happened? <laughs> and now they've been married 49 years, 48 years. And the resilience and the commitment and the ability to get along with somebody. One uh, story is about a guy came home, his wife had divorced him, said, I'm divorced, out of here. And two months later, he met a widow whose husband had been shot down and didn't come home. They fell in love right away. He's 91 now. He still comes to reunions. She's there. She's about 86. But the title of their story is Independent and Interdependent. Hmm. And that's a great point because you always have to be independent. But if you're in a great relationship, you have to be interdependent too. Being able to work out is such a healthy thing for a marriage or any relationship. You can't change that other person and they're not going to make you who you are. You are who you are. Mm-hmm. And they are who they are. You don't try to change them, but just let them be them and you be them yourself. And let's see for how we can be interdependent on lots of areas and be committed and be companions. That's awesome. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, when you get to be your age and, you know, when you look back, this is the relationships, right? The relationships you have with your teammates over there that you shared that time with, the relationship you have with your significant other and your kids. I mean, that's the most important thing, isn't it? It is. And as a leader and anyone listening, like, just take that into account. Like, it's, it is all about you, your health, but then you giving to others is what makes you whole. Exactly. I've seen this so much like you have, okay? And I build models. So I got this graphic visual. I got in this five PowerPoints, but picture a continuum. On the left side is insecure and on the right is secure. Mm-hmm. Well, first piece of it, it shows that. And then it shows people in different shades of color. And today they're here, but then there's a graph under it. And tomorrow they're over here because in certain situations we're more insecure. Man. And we're all sliding back and forth. But here's what we want to do. We all want to move toward being more secure and believing in ourselves so that we can be both confident and humble. And when you're confident and humble, then you can be realistic. And when you mess up, you can take ownership for it. And people will trust you more when you own it, when you mess up, you know? That's right. I shouldn't have said that. We shouldn't have done that. That's my fault. And they trust you more. They believe in you more. And here's the other thing, though. Leaders, you must help people become more secure. You must let them know you believe in them. Find something, affirm them, acknowledge their existence, accept them for who they are, affirm them, and appreciate them. Because every human being wants to feel worthy to be somebody, Mm -hmm. to be cared about. It's just we're not machines. We have a heart and we have a psyche that wants to be valuable. That's right. And when you as a leader help your people feel more valuable, they're going to perform better. They're going to be more loyal. They're going to respect you more. And they're going to be a better team. That's right. Hoo-yah, as we would say in the SEALs. <laughs> Hoo-yah. Hoo-yah. Yep. Fantastic. All right, Lee. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Thank you for your service and um, for bringing your whole self to the world. Well, thank you, Mark, for all you're doing. And I really like the fact that you're helping us think about ourselves in your writings and your podcasts and uh, on your LinkedIn. I follow there and read it. I was reading about the being more, uh, what's the word? It starts with an I. <laughs> intuitive. Intuitive, yes. And I talked about that yesterday. I said, you're going to be a leader. You got to learn to be intuitive and right. listen to your gut and work through it. Right. And I think you've done such a great job of presenting that for us that cause us to stop and think about that in a good way. So I really appreciate your angle of mm-hmm. leadership and personal development and teamwork that you're presenting because not many people are doing that. And I like it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we do what we do. Right. And yeah. try to make a difference. And we hold a positive vision for the world. And I say this like, there's not just one world out there. There's 8 billion worlds and your world's the most important. So get your world right first. 
you've been very helpful to help people understand that, you know, hey, we can come out of anything, right? Anything hard, there's a, an end to it and there's a positive future. A lot of people are going through some tough times right now mm-hmm. and they can't see the positive future because they're just caught in distraction and, and all the fear mongering. So turn off that TV, turn off that news, start looking within and start looking to your fellow humans and seeing the goodness and, and helping them out. And all of a sudden, everyone will be like, oh, actually, I feel pretty good and pretty positive. Let's stay connected. I appreciate that. Yep. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, Lee. Wow. That's all I can say is wow. Check out POWRomance.com for his latest book. He's also got Engage with Honor and Leading with Honor. This is an honorable man and what an incredible story. Thank you so much, Mr. Lee Ellis, for joining me. And for you, thank you again for your support. And I hope you have an incredible holiday season and getting ready for a safe New Year's and that 2024 is best year ever. Show notes from this episode will be up on markdevine.com. YouTube will be on the YouTube channel. You can find me on Twitter, X at Mark Divine, and on Instagram or Facebook at Real Mark Divine, or you can reach out on my LinkedIn channel. If you're not on the distribution list for my newsletter, Divine Inspiration, consider going to markdivine.com to subscribe and share it with your friends. Every Tuesday, I send out the most inspirational things that I find the week before, uh, my blog, show notes from the week's podcast and other things that will inspire you, all of it positive, all of it to help you move forward and become unbeatable. So go to markdevine.com, subscribe, and thank you for my incredible team of Jason Sanderson and Catherine Devine to help produce this podcast and bring guests like Lee to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very helpful, so if you haven't done so, please consider rating and reviewing the show wherever you listen. It helps other people find it and keeps us at the top of the rankings. So thank you for that. And again, thanks for being part of the show. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And I can't wait to do more of this and for sure more stories and people like Lee with you in 24. Ooh, yeah. Divine out. <laughs> <laughs>